Good morning. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and and, and kick us off here, um, just for the sake of time. And given the uh, the weightiness, the, the the thank you, the meatiness uh, of the of the topic, I, I I thought I'd try I'd do my best to leave some time for discussion uh, at the end uh, because it's not a it's not an easy, you know. So I say, well, let's let's do the atonement in 20 minutes. You know, it doesn't really work that way. I mean, um, it's a complicated subject, but it's accessible, and I think that's what we we recognize here. It's accessible. So let's uh, ask a prayer, and then try to access this a little more based on what we did last week. I'll, I'll rehearse that a minute. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we ask a blessing on this time together. And thank you for the mercy we've been given and the eternal hope we're promised. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Oh, okay, so last week, where, where, did we, uh, where, where did we travel last week? Well, the, the topic is citizenship. It's a, it's a question of citizenship. So it's a question of belonging. It's a question of how we recognize where we fit in in terms of duties and responsibilities. Um, and citizenship itself is, a, is an enormous uh, question uh, that has ancient roots um, and, and a lot of philosophical uh, tendrils that we could follow with it to try to make sense of it. But the, the, to frame the question properly for what we're trying, we're trying to ask this uh, question of citizenship in light of, of Christianity. What does it mean to say I'm a Christian and I'm a citizen? And so uh, what I'm offering is uh, perhaps a model for thinking about that, for, uh, for, for tossing these concepts around. And I suggested a, a couple of things. One, it's very confusing. It's very confusing, especially given the number of conflicting voices we hear in popular culture. And I think this is largely true in popular Christian culture, where you hear people talk about voting a certain way, uh, certain cultural or social positions you're supposed to hold. Uh, the two intersections, I think, where this comes out most dramatically are law and education. Uh, they, it tends to, cultural wars tend to collide there more than other places, how we educate our children, how we pass on values, and how we're going to legally live together. And I, uh, I made the suggestion that perhaps we need to stop listening to that and think about the church and think about what it means to be the church. To that end, uh, I, I think scripture tells us that to be the church is to be part of a supernatural society. It is to be social. It is to be part of a political community. It's a political community that has already been inaugurated but has not yet found is permanent fulfillment. We're there, but we're not. And to appreciate that, we have to bow the knee and accept certain spiritual realities that make us human, make us what we are, but also tell us and give us our redemption. That is the Lordship of Christ that's enacted in the church week in, week out, in the very thing we did 
this morning when we take the Eucharist, when we gather for worship and corporate prayer, we are enacting a type of citizenship. Also, I think if that is a type of citizenship, and I think the Bible will suggest it is, we'll look at some scripture just in a moment, we have to be wary and we have to be cautious when people um, or personalities, popular Christian personalities, try to bind conscience around activities or imperatives that don't properly fall within the ordering of that spiritual reality that the church embodies right now. Now, What do I mean by that? I mean, and I read a passage, a a quick passage from Michael Horton uh, trying to exemplify this, that when we come to worship and when we come to the church and when we self-reflect about what the church is and the eternal purposes of the church, the supranatural character of the church. Uh, we come in gratitude and hopefulness. And when you think of all the weariness that each one of us in this room, much less this entire church, much less this entire city, bring, uh, what Joe was talking about this morning. Um, and then you sit under an authoritative ministry or Bible study or other type of church activity where you're told, do more. Think this. Work harder. We're missing it. We're missing the peace of God and the eternal purposes and promises that we've come to celebrate here. And Horton's point, if you remember that quote I read, was pretty powerful in that he, he dramatized just how the, the person suffering with a, a disease perhaps or financial burden or just the anxiety of trying to get seven hours of sleep or whatever or uh, the mistakes that maybe are in the past or perhaps mistakes that still haunt us internally uh, with desires we don't like about ourselves, that all these things that we can unburden, we can literally unburden in the company of other sinners, redeemed sinners, and know that the, the, the God is pleased and the angels await us. It's an undue and unnecessary burden. And it's adding something that Christ did not add. Indeed, he took it away. So I suggested that the first part of understanding citizenship as a Christian is to understand the relationship between the law and gospel as Christ is retaught us and as the apostolic witness established for us that we are supposed to be carrying on in the church. The second part of understanding citizenship is understanding the right relationship between Israel and the church. And to that end, I argue, and, I, and I, I suggest still, that we need to uh, read the Bible in, in a certain way, a certain fashion. We approach the text, we approach the authoritative word of God in such a way 
that it allows us to, to have a framework for thinking about ourselves in relationship to the social order and the eternal uh, heavenly pattern that we come and meet week in and week out. So we see Christ anticipated in the Old Covenant. We learn from Israel and the law. We are made, made aware and confronted with the character of God and our sin. We have typological anticipations that teach us what a king is according to God's character and according to God's own self-witness to Israel. This is what a king is. Oh, and by the way, Israel, your kings haven't fared so well. Next, we see Christ is physically present with us in the New Testament witness. This is the first books of the New Testament, the Gospels. The king is here. The kingdom is present. The miracles point to this. The parables point to the king and the kingdom. But our expectations are defied. We're turned inside out by a suffering servant. We don't have a Roman general or a praetor. We have a friend of the despised of tax collectors and prostitutes. The way of the king is the way of the cross. The kingdom comes through humiliation. The triumph of the king is in suffering. But then there is the triumph of the resurrection as well that has to be seen with the cross that points to and secures our hope now as citizens in this kingdom. So we are promised that Christ is spiritually present with us. This is the third thing. Christ is spiritually present with us. This is, we, we have the book of Acts, we have the epistles, we have the apostolic witness that says we saw it. And we know that God is making this known to you. And that the church matters. The apostolic witness, Christ the King, is with us now. Spiritually, in proclamation. This is the gospel. This is the week in, week out celebration of the Eucharist, the liturgy, enacting this witness we do every Sunday. So, we, we have the king promised, the king with us, uh, physically the king spiritually present with us. And finally, we anticipate his return. We read the scriptures and we enact the life of a Christian citizen anticipating his return. We live in the hope of forgiveness of the resurrection. We long for Christ's return and we tend the garden in the interim. We take care of it. We repent. We believe it's held up to us week in and week out. And we know that our Redeemer liveth. So again it's a meaty subject but it is a paradigm it's a way of approaching scripture that I think is secured both by scripture and in a moment I'll suggest by, hist by uh, fathers of the church and the, and the theological witness for us so uh, scripture itself Matthew 4, 8, 11 Jesus is taken in temptation to the mountain and is told uh, by, by Satan uh, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all of this. And Christ 
says, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the devil left him. In, in the midst of the temptation of earthly power, Christ knows he already has it. But God's sovereignty is the way of the cross, not the way of raw power, of the assertion of that authority. Coercion is what the word that I would use. And I'll say more about it in just a moment. Matthew 22, 15 through 22. Uh, on the passage, I'm paying the imperial tax to Caesar. The Pharisees go out and they, they want to trap him. They want to trap Jesus with his own words. Uh, they go before the Herodians, which is just a political party. Herod's political party. They say, uh, look, we know you're a, you have a lot of integrity. You're a smart guy. You're a good guy. We like that. Nobody can really sway you. But tell us, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar, and to God's what is God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed. And they left and went away. And then we have the gospel witness of Jesus before Pilate. Where Pilate is arguing with the crowd, why you want me to kill this guy? And he says, you take him. You Jews take him. Judge him by your own law. And not satisfied, Pilate brings... Jesus back before him and says, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? I am, a, am I a Jew? Pilate replied, Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. And by the Jewish leader, by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king, then said Pilate. Jesus answered, "You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me." Pilate's understanding of kingship is not comparable to what Christ is talking about. He cannot understand power, social organization, and coercion apart from the state and the exercise of force. Jesus defies this. He's a mystery. He stands outside. His witness stands outside of history while his body stands in history. He's physically in history. But the kingdom he proclaims actually must break through history and bring history to a close. And this is part of the dilemma of Christian citizenship. We live embodied in space and time with all the corporeal burdens, social, political, as well as physical, that go with that. And yet everything about what Scripture tells us is it's coming. It's better. It will culminate in something different than you know now. And a justice will be realized that you only have a glimpse of. So, next we have Paul. Paul tells us, Romans 8, 
we read it in uh, the service today, so about the creation groaning, and uh, Paul uh, speaks pointedly uh, in a kind of dualistic language. There is that which is and that which is coming. Philippians 3, 12 through 21. Join, uh, this is, let's just read 17. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have as us as a model, keep your eyes on those who, who, those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with my tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. And then, of course, we have Paul's admonition in Romans 13 about obeying the authorities and power for the sake of time. We also have an admonition in First in Timothy about living quiet lives of godliness and holiness. And finally, the last passage Scripture proof texting is difficult, but again, I think it does set a pattern. I think it has its problems, but it sets a pattern that's worth wrestling with. And that is, we live as aliens and strangers in the world. If, if you'll indulge me just a moment, 1 Peter 2, 11 through 25. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people. But do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Evil, live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers, the church. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So, we have a pattern. The New Testament sets us a pattern of interpretation that, that demands we wrestle with it and forces us to think in terms of a dual citizenship of what it means to be both embodied in history and to await what is outside of history yet has broken in in the promise and hope of Christ and the resurrection. The, uh, where, uh, historically speaking, right, to to jump uh, jump ahead a bit, where, where you see, where we see this powerfully referenced and proclaimed in church history and in Christian thought in one of the first long and uh, potent expositions of this idea of dual citizenship is in the thinking of St. Augustine, Augustine of Hippo in North Africa, right? And it's, it's in Augustine's writing that uh, specifically his magisterial city of God, a tome, I mean, it's, it's a brick, uh, that uh, uh, it's there that we see dramatized Um, a a real theological effort to make sense of dual citizenship, of what it means to live between two worlds. 
in, in an expository and theological way that really still hovers over Western thought. And it should. And it should also be a reference point for us when we try to interpret our citizenship. Augustine lives and, and witnesses the actual uh, collapse of the Roman Empire uh, in 410 when Alaric, the the tribal huntsman comes into Rome and takes it down. It was a not as movie uh, Hollywood uh, available as you might think it was. I think it was more of a starve them out, let's just wait this thing out kind of thing. Um, uh, and, and they anyway, so they go in and they they, they go into uh, Rome and and they take control of the political institutions. The senatorial class has already fleed. Most of the Roman imperial. Um, Machineries over in Constantinople at this point anyway uh, because uh, the last hundred years or so Rome has just been slowly becoming a backwater. Well, it goes down and you know, you've got these non-Romans now marching around the forum and controlling what used to be uh, the, the, the province and tenure of the true-blooded Romans. And it's... It's not just a trying time, it's an impossible time. History has been violated. The, the order has, has uh, inverted. It doesn't make sense. It's Pearl Harbor. It's 9-11 times 20, times 100, um, because it's gone. And it, one of the first things that most Romans do is they start to figure out, well, what happened? And so they, they, they were sitting in there probably having Roman cocktail party or something. They were sitting around talking and they said, you know, here's what happened. Uh, what happened is this guy named Constantine came along and he made us all a bunch of sissies. We had a tradition. We had law. We had honor. We had virtue and piety. And now we got a bunch of Christians running around and they're wimpy and they're weak. And it's a foreign religion and it's a religion we can't control because the other priests were appointed by the state. These aren't we don't know what they're doing. And so they pull their chariots into their, probably a little region called Vestavia. I don't know what it was called, but that is a Roman goddess, right? So they, 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 and, they, and the conservative Romans really had a problem with this. Well, it was Augustine who responded. It was Augustine who responded. And he responded powerfully. It took him 15 years. He was 57 when he started writing it. And it's, it's the magnum opus. And, and, and amazingly, he died himself. As he was dying in Thagaste, or right outside of Hippo, uh, the, a tribe of um, Visigoths had come down into North Africa. And he could hear the, the fighting outside of the city as he lay dying. So truly, uh, one of those, you know, certain people just grab history and make it more than, it becomes a symbol of something. And, and I think he's one of those guys. Well, so what does he say in the city of God? He says, this is a lesson. This is a lesson for Christianity. You cannot understand power or history the way Rome has understood power and history. Because the way Rome has understood power and history is false. It's based on what he says, the Latin, the libido dominandi, the lust for domination. It's based on pure coercion. Christianity 
is not based on coercion. It is based on witness to truth. Christianity knows the origins of truth and strives for that. Political power does not. Now, he doesn't leave it there, though. Remember, it's a big book. And I just spent 20 seconds summing it up, but he doesn't leave it there because he says, what is it that we really want? What is it that political orders really want? That we want peace and we want justice. That's what politics does. And here he's given a wink at an old dead Greek named Plato. And he says, that's what we want. We want peace and justice. That's true of the Christian and the non-Christian. The difference is, the difference is, is that the city of man understands peace and justice in ter- only in terms of secular ends and only in terms of ends that can be wrought by power and coercion. It doesn't know what the ultimate end or function of peace and justice is. Augustine says Christianity knows what the ultimate end of peace and justice is. It's Christ and his kingdom. That's the city of God. The city of God knows and recognizes the ultimate ends. However, in between, we can share. We have to share. Because God made us in such a way that this desire for peace and justice is natural to us. It's part of the created warp and woof of who we are. So the difference, the distinction he's making is between an eternal understanding of the transitoriness, what he calls the peregrino, the pilgrim. The pilgrim who uses the ends of peace and justice and points to their ultimate ends, the church, points to the ultimate ends along the way and yet shares at the same time in the politics that allows for the stability that peace and justice requires for social life, for commerce, for civic interaction. All these things are necessary. Law, education, they're all necessary for a stable society. So Christians aren't against this, nor do they feel like that these things um, cannot be shared or achieved with people outside of Christianity. The difference is a Christian citizen does not recognize these as final ends according to human means. It's borrowed capital. It's shared collateral. Because we are created for this. And we are created to strive for this. Sin, of course, as Paul says, and then Augustine elaborates, has distorted us. That's why the libido dominante, the will, the will to power, the lust for domination, controls politics. And it can never be ultimately controlled by the final ends, the final witness, the cross and the resurrection until it is subsumed in history and in time in the last days. 
now. So the question becomes, and again, I'll, I'll, I think discussion's warranted, but maybe, maybe I'll run. I don't know what I'll do yet, but, but maybe. So the question is, fine, we get peace and justice. Salvation matters. The church matters. I want to know how to vote. <laughs> I want to know what to do with my kids, right? I want to know what to do with the Internet. I want to, you know, and, and, it's, it, 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 and guess what? Augustine doesn't tell us. Paul doesn't tell us. Our king doesn't tell us. He doesn't say how to do these things. We have a proximate God. We know the character of God. We know what the law of God demands. And we know what the grace of God has done to fulfill those demands on our behalf. We can witness to the power of the cross and the resurrection, but that power does not tell us how to vote or how to educate our children or what car to drive or when to brush our teeth or whether we part our hair on the left or the right or who am I going to marry? Sorry, I just hear this one all the time. I don't know. (laughs) And the Bible doesn't say. What we do know is that the character, peace, and justice of God witnesses to a king who has promised that everything is under his control and your job is to be a faithful pilgrim between the times. Well, what happens then? What happens if we don't agree with people? (laughs) Now, this is shocking because guess what? In politics, people don't agree. No, I know. That, that one's a, that, well, Paul tells us, Paul indicates, and later theologians help us understand, you really ask yourself two questions. You ask yourselves two important questions. As a peregrino and a pilgrim who understands that the lust for domination controls the sinful will and who knows that the church is the enactment of the purposes of the king over and over again to restore us, you ask yourselves two questions. One, the first question is, the first question is, is the power, the citizen of this city, the earthly city, is is that citizenship requiring something immoral of me? Is there a law or a coercive power that requires something immoral of me? So, Am I required to do something immoral? Is the first question. And two, am I prohibited from worshiping? Am I inhibited or prohibited? Is there a prohibition from worshiping God? Now, These are starting points. These are starting points. There's lots of detail you can fill in between, i.e. we can know the good. We can share the good. We can get at the good by virtue of, say, natural law or common grace, two interesting terms if you think about it. That we can share these things. We can share in this good and we can share in the prospects of the good. Yes, that's a type of reasoning that you can chase, okay? 
But the two fundamental questions that I think the early theologians ask us to search out, that scripture asks us, ask, ask us to search out, is am I, what is peace, how do you pursue it, and share in the common good and knowledge of that with unbelievers and believers? What is justice, and how do I share in that? Knowing that the ends of this, the ends of these things are always found in the work of Christ, and ultimately is the state or the coercive power of the city of man requiring anything immoral or prohibiting worship. And those are the questions that start a Christian understanding of citizenship. So, thoughts? A question pops in my mind in the background. A quote that's attributed to Augustine. Did he actually say, love God and do as you please? Or that just I've never heard of that. But um, I know he said this. I know he said this. He said, if I can paraphrase, he said, you are what you love. He said that what we love tells us who we are. And that's true not only of individuals, but of social orders as well. But I don't, I don't know, I'm not sure about that one. I like it, though. <laughs> I don't know if it's buried in the city of God. It, it probably is. It's a big boat. Other thoughts? Questions? Problems? Well, sort of. What do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean by freedom? Like it's the ultimate as a Christian. Yeah. Our eternal. We know the ultimate kingdom of God is peace and justice. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It is a type of freedom, you know. But Paul, Paul does talk of freedom. He also talks of slavery. Right. And he talks about us being slaves, doulos, bound to God, bound to sin. We're either so he uses that language in tension and in paradox somewhat. That while and Luther picks up on this paradox when he writes this treatise on Christian freedom and liberty, treatise on Christian liberty, he says that's we live in tension now between freedom and slavery, but it, it's a spiritual. It's, the nice word is ontological. It's part of our being. What we love, we are what we love. And that freedom, of course, the freedom that Paul's talking about is the freedom that comes in the recognition that our souls, our eternal condition, our eternal state is secure and that the character of God is known. And we can be at peace. We, we can be free. But the way we're free is we're slaves. We're slaves to Christ. I think it's that slavery to Christ then frees us to educate our children Yes. Yeah. That's right. Brush our teeth with our left hand. Cut the gray out of our hair. <laughs> Not that I do that, but anyway. <laughs> right, right. It, it, it gives us right. In other words, and, and, and this is something I set up last week. It's that freedom that both keeps us from having conscience bound where it shouldn't be bound, but also. It's, it's the slavery, it's the boundness of the doulos, of the slave that says, I can't bind your conscience. I can't tell you what to do and say it's in the name of Christ. And without you turning and telling me, stop, because Christ has liberated me. And you cannot do that to me. Yeah, because a slave has no right. 
Because it's late. That's right. I've got two questions. I'll do the first one. Okay. In, in, in theory, I don't disagree at all with your logic, but it seems to me that under the principle of you can't find my conscience, it seems to me that the bishop and Bishop Suffragette and the other five ministers who got that letter from Dr. Keene could have very easily turned around and said, you can't find my conscience on this. And I, and I don't mean that to be a when did you stop being your wife kind of question, but retroactively applying that to the civil rights movement or mm-hmm. to slavery. And mm-hmm. I'll grant, by the way, that the Christian ministers involved in those were not, were, were in practice usually Unitarians. I mean, very often the, the orthodox quality of their message was questionable at best. But all the same, it seems to me that if you were a Southern minister, you could have very easily completely ignored that I, am, am I I, ignored the the plea for yeah the, the plea for for that in the in, in the name of Christianity. Well, said, okay, I, I, so it becomes a question of justice. Right. All right. Now here's here here's the counter to that. Okay. Or at least a I, I think a potential problem with it. Sure. Is how. Do you, do you are we saying you're not a Christian if you do not support these things, or are we saying that a just society does these things? Those are two separate questions. There are two separate questions, but I'm I'm pulling them out. So if we say that you are no longer a you are you you deserve spiritual discipline, you have violated, for example, the will of God. In doing this, you're making a theological claim. If you say you are not being a just person, this is not what a just society strives for. You are making a political and social claim about justice. Now, the Christian can always say, because we believe our vision of justice is grounded in some eternal truth, that this is why we think humans' dignity and, and, and such as that. But I don't know that the Christian can turn in and say, but you're not a Christian if you don't do this. If you don't do these things, you're not a Christian. I don't know that we have that liberty. King took that liberty, I recall. So have others. Right, sure, sure, sure. So have lots of others. It's a question. I I think people take it today as well. I've actually heard Pat Robertson take that liberty. I've heard Jerry Falwell take that liberty. I've heard uh, many uh, people with so-called worldview ministries take that liberty week in and week out. I think it's a question, but what I am suggesting is you cannot call salvation into question over these issues. And I believe Paul and Augustine are. Paul, I praise, therefore I beseech thee, brethren, in view of God's mercy, that beseeching is demand. That's right. And part of, and, and that's part of the strategy of, 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 of democratic movements is you can use. And maybe it is something as the church we should wrestle with more. Maybe, maybe it is something that we need to struggle with more. That when people call us to a political program, are we still being the church? Or have we opened ourselves up to something else? Whether it be from the left or the right. Ah, we're out of time. It's good stuff. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah.